When I left school, I decided that I wanted to be a classical studies and English teacher. I talked with my favorite teacher at school, who was the head of the English department, um, and he advised me that I should get a degree in English and ancient history and then a diploma of teaching. So I did. I was accepted into Auckland University where I studied English and ancient history for three years. And one of the papers that I took was adolescent fiction. This was a great paper for someone who was planning to teach teenagers about literature. Now, I'm someone who doesn't like to do unnecessary work. So, at the beginning of each paper, I would figure out exactly how many of the books I needed to study, or we could phrase it, I figured out which ones I didn't need to study and completely ignored them. So I ended up with a choice between a morally dubious and reasonably explicit book about teenage girls or Harry Potter. Something else you need to know is that I came from a church who were very opposed to stories about witches and wizards. Although I don't think they'd be any happier about teenage sexual experimentation. I was already challenging these sorts of ideas because I don't think anyone in the congregation would have an issue reading The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. I also think it's really important to know what you're talking about. I wasn't going to be able to have healthy discussions with people about Harry Potter if I didn't know anything about it. So I decided that because I was a grown-up and was able to separate fact from fiction, I would keep myself away from the moral issues of sexually fluid teens and enjoy a story about magic. What I came to realize while reading Harry Potter is that it's a very basic plot. It's a plot that's been used countless times. It's the classic schoolboy story in a pyramid plot. Boy finds some, out something interesting, goes off to boarding school. There's an issue that the grown-ups can't possibly sort out, so it's up to the kids, and they succeed. It's well-written with a very interesting use of language, and it works on the idea of good overcoming evil, especially when good works together as a team. Anyway, I'm not here in a promotional capacity. So it's totally up to you if you want to read it or not. <laughs> but it left me with a really interesting idea in my head. There are people who make assumptions about things without knowing too much about it. Most people I had talked to prior to reading the Harry Potter books were of the opinion that it was an evil construct designed deliberately to make kids want to pursue witchcraft and devil worship. I don't think that's the case. It's a story that has a fantasy element that never tries to pretend any of it's real or possible. But if you don't read it, and you base all of your opinions on assumptions from other people, you could get quite worked up about it. And then I wondered, how often do we do that with the Bible? How often do we have a story a certain way in our heads, because that's how we heard it as children? And how often are we using verses out of context because that's how we've heard other people use them? I'm going to give you an example. Jacob had a big old fight with his brother Esau and had to flee to his uncle Laban's house. There he met Rachel and decided he wanted to marry her. Laban said that was all good if he worked for him for seven years. So he did. At that point, he was tricked into marrying Leah instead of Rachel and was justifiably quite upset about it. He still wanted to marry Rachel. And Laban said that was fine if he worked for another seven years. And this is the story as most of us know it. And there's an assumption that he not only had to work for 14 years for Rachel, but that he had to wait for 14 years for Rachel. And that's not the case. He married her a week after he married Leah. 
and then he does his additional seven years. It's a simple misunderstanding, but it goes to show how often we assume things without checking. Now I'm going to show you a picture. It's Noah and the ark, two of each animal. Classic. But let's read the passage. Then Noah said, the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark with your whole family. I know that you are a godly man among the people of today. Take seven pairs of every kind of clean animal with you. Take a male and female of each kind. Take one pair of each kind of animal that is not clean. Take a male and female of each kind. Also take seven pairs of every kind of bird. Take a male and female of each kind. Then every kind will be kept alive and they can spread out again over the whole earth. Now I checked all of the children's stories in the church library and in our home that mentioned Noah. And none of them had anything about seven pairs. Now I'm sure a whole lot of you have read this passage multiple times and think I'm ridiculous for only realising it this week. But I'm sure that those of you who have read it were surprised by that detail because we teach it as two of each animal. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to teach that we've got a male and female of each animal, perhaps two of them. It's just that sometimes we make assumptions and put in more or different details than are really there. And now that I'm quite a few minutes into my sermon, we'll get to my topic for today. What I'm actually going to be talking about is David and Bathsheba. <laughs> and I find it, found it amazing while I was reading the commentaries on this passage about how different the ideas were. So what we're going to do is do a little study, and then we're going to look at what we can actually learn from the passage. So it's quite a long read. We're reading the whole of 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her, now that she was finished purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all the master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. 
but in the evening Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among the master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you've finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up. He may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they'd shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of someone else? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had said, sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Hmm, there's a lot in there. This story raises so many questions and has so many theories. And I found multiple commentaries that talk about the same event in opposite ways and they state their opinions as truth. The biggest one is that David should have been at war and not resting at home. A lot of people writing on this passage seem to have that opinion. However, it's not necessarily true. David was known to have his generals go and set up a battle and then join them later. One commentator says that this is proof that he didn't need to be there. We have an account of him staying home previously, so it's actually not a big deal. Another commentator says that it's proof that the devil lulls you into a false sense of security. David had stayed home previously, nothing bad had happened, so he did it again, and that's when the bad stuff happened. How can we know which one is right? We also have the idea of him being on the roof at night time. Some people think that it's perfectly reasonable for him to be wandering on his own roof at night time. Others are a little more critical. And they say things like he would have been asleep if he hadn't been idle and having afternoon naps, so he shouldn't have been up there. But then neither apparently should Bathsheba. When it comes to Bathsheba, there are some very concerning commentaries. Unfortunately, some fall into the trap of victim blaming. They say really unhelpful things like Bathsheba knew she could be seen and so was being promiscuous. Bathsheba didn't try to fight David off, so she's partly to blame. 
I don't know the reasoning behind these comments. Maybe it's just too hard to imagine King David doing bad things, and so they need a sort of scapegoat. But it's very unlikely that she was doing anything more than washing with a bowl of water while clothed. She was on her own roof in the cool of the evening, and she was doing what was required by the law to be clean. But what's interesting is that none of this is the point of the story. We are given no insight into intent or motive. We are not shown any of the thought processes or justifications. We are simply told that David saw, he inquired, and he took. He was characteristically decisive. He also did not try to hide what he was doing. He inquired of others who she was and had her brought by others to the palace. Plenty of people knew. It may be that David should have been leading the army. It's just as likely that he was simply having a rest before going to battle. Whatever the reason, he found himself at a time of leisure, and in that time he was tempted. He saw a beautiful woman, he decided he would sleep with her, and he made it happen. We can't know the motivation. We can't know what he was think thinking. We simply know that he did. And it's a waste of time, actually, trying to figure out why this man of God, who was titled by Samuel, a man after God's own heart, would make such a mistake. The point is that he did. So what we need to ask is what can we learn? And Jeremy gave us the answer last week. In Matthew 26, 41, Jesus says to his disciples, keep watching and praying so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We all have areas of our life that we find really hard. For some, it is sexual sin. For some, it is laziness. For some, it is lying. For some, it is anger. For some, it is fear of what other people think. For some, it is greed. There are endless things that it could be. But what we need to do is make sure that we are always on our guard. There is no time we can relax and say, nothing can touch me now. King David had experienced God from a really young age. His speech to Goliath in 1 Samuel 17 shows the most incredible faith. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel." All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. He is convinced that God will give him victory and bring glory to his own name. God was with him when, and led him when he fled from Saul. He was made king and led Israel in victory countless times. He was a man who did what God asked and whom God blessed. He had seven wives and a number of concubines, so that wasn't the issue. He was susceptible, however, and he made a huge mistake. We need to know that no matter who we are, no matter what our experiences have been, we all have vulnerability. 
the devil will always be trying to take us out. He may be really obvious about it, or he might be really subtle. But what we can be absolutely sure of is that he will try. We must be constantly vigilant. There is a teacher in the Harry Potter books who is teaching the kids how to protect themselves against the dark arts. And he yells randomly at them, constant vigilance! And say what you will about Harry Potter, it's actually very good advice. We need to be always on guard for what the devil might be trying to do. We need to put support around ourselves, especially in regards to our weaknesses. One of the main ways we can protect ourselves is to keep close to God. We need to spend time in prayer with him. We need to deepen our relationship with him. If we spend our lives living as best we can in the image of Christ, then we are far less likely to fall into the traps of the devil. The other thing we can do is to have accountability in our lives. And if you want to know more about that, Jeremy's going to be preaching on it next week. If we are living in the image of God, then we will have a big impact on those around us. And that's going to get the devil super mad and he's going to come after us and we need to be aware of that and be prepared to fight. We need to be aware of our weaknesses. We need to pray for God's protection. We need to watch lest we fall into the trap. We need to be constantly vigilant. There is a second lesson that we need to take from this story. And that unfortunately is that sin leads to more sin. David sleeps with another man's wife and he thinks that's the end of it. She's not likely to tell anyone because her punishment would be death. And he's not likely to tell anyone because his punishment would be death. But then she sends him the world-shattering message, I'm pregnant. She doesn't demand or threaten. There's no emotion attributed, just fact. And David doesn't panic, he simply sends for Uriah. And here's where the commentaries differ again. Some say he's hoping Uriah will sleep with his wife so that he can claim paternity of the child. Others say he's hoping Uriah will sleep with his wife, which is breaking the covenant of men at war so he can be put to death legitimately. And I don't think it really matters because what he was trying to do was cover up his sin. And it didn't go well for him. David even tries to get Uriah drunk, but Uriah is more honorable drunk than David is sober. David again doesn't give it much thought. He simply sends a letter to his commander outlying how he would like Uriah killed. And he sends the letter with Uriah. Uriah is put in the worst part of the battle and he and allegedly up to 18 other men die. Word is sent to David and I find his reply chilling. Essentially he says, don't let this bother you. People die in battle all the time. Carry on. He started with a sin of passion, which led to a failed cover-up, which led to a murder, and he doesn't even seem to realize what he has done. It looks as if he thinks he's found a very clever loophole because you can't get in trouble for a death during war. Then he adds Bathsheba as another wife, and she, ha she has their baby. All seemingly done in a very matter-of-fact way, as if he's gotten away with it. What started off as a one-off event becomes a series of bad choices and worse decisions and terrible outcomes. And what can we learn from this? 
sin leads to more sin. Sometimes we try to justify that it's just a one-off or not a big deal, but it will always get worse. Recently, I read in the news that Canada is considering new laws in regards to euthanasia. In 2016, they brought in quite strict rules that allowed assisted dying for those with terminal illnesses. In 2020, they passed an amendment allowing for assisted dying for those with chronic conditions that are not life-threatening. And now, just two years later, they are trying to pass assisted dying for those with mental illnesses. A massively problematic issue. One doctor said that the first time she was there for assisted dying was for a woman in her 60s with late-stage cancer, and it felt like she was stepping off a cliff. Now there have been hundreds of cases she has been there for, and it is perfectly normal. She is shocked by how quickly it has become that way and how quickly the law is changing to make it worse. It always gets worse. Once you do a little bit and that becomes your new normal, the little bit more seems like a little bit, but is actually a lot. I'm sure that David did not start his evening with Bathsheba thinking he would end up committing murder. And I'm sure that none of us out here are considering campaigning for looser euthanasia laws or sleeping with married people. But the principle applies to all of our actions, not just the really obviously bad ones. So many times people think that what they're doing is just a simple little thing. They convince themselves that it's not a big deal. It's just a little lie, just a little bit of anger, just a little bit of drinking, just a little bit of something you shouldn't watch. They didn't think. They think it doesn't really matter and that it's not hurting anyone else. But if it's against how God is asking you to live, it will get worse. Instead of trying to figure out how much we can get away with, we need to be fighting to stay in God's plan. We need to be on guard. We need to pray and watch. We need to be constantly vigilant. The final verse of this chapter states, but the Lord wasn't pleased with what David had done. Jeremy's going to be speaking about the next chapter next week, but I want to end my sermon on a slightly more positive note. We have seen that we need to be constantly on guard because we are vulnerable to attacks from the devil. We have talked about how we need to keep close to God and seek to live in his image. And I want to give you some encouragement. When I was younger, I used to hate the story of David messing up because I could not get my head around how someone who loved God so much could do something so bad. As I've experienced more of life, I can see the encouragement in the story. As much as we try to love God and live for him, we are bound to mess up. What is so incredible about this story is what happens when David comes back to God the Father. In Psalm 32, 5, David says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. David messed up badly. But that does not in any way impact the goodness of God. When David confessed, the Lord forgave. It is that simple. 
There were still consequences that had to be worked through, but the guilt from his sin was done away with. The relationship between David and God was fully restored. When David is talked about in the New Testament, it is not as the man who committed adultery, lied, deceived, and committed murder. He is still titled a man after God's own heart. His relationship with God was fully restored and he was able to carry on living for God knowing that his sins were forgiven. We have been made sons and daughters of God. So when we mess up and come to the Father, he welcomes us with open arms. He doesn't hold our sin over us. He doesn't use it against us. He doesn't remind us of it. It is done away. It is taken as far as the east is from the west. When we come to the Father, we can lay down our burden of guilt and shame and stand up in the Father's presence knowing that it is gone. We're going to finish up this sermon by listening to a song about coming to the Father. And I pray that you'll let it seep deep into your heart. And then I'll come and close. Thank you, guys. Jesus has fully restored us through his work on the cross. And we need to honor that restoration. Our part is to keep seeking after God. Our part is to develop our relationship. Our part is to live lives that are in the image of God. Our part is to be constantly vigilant. I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you so much for who you are and what you do for us. Thank you that we can lean into you, that we can lay our weaknesses before you and say, God, I need your strength here. That as we look out at the world, we don't need to fear it. We don't need to be worried about what has gone before because you walk with us. Because you are our Father our loving Father. And yes, you correct us. And yes, you won't let us get away with nonsense. But you love us. And you love us and you love us. And we thank you so much for that, Lord. We are excited about what you have done and what you are going to do in our lives. We are excited about living for you in this world we are excited about what you are going to do in the lives of others around us as we live in the image of Christ. Thank you for your sacrifice in Jesus' name.